Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Lydia Brandt. Dr. Brandt is assistant professor of art history at the University of South Carolina, where she teaches the history of American art and architecture, as well as methods of historic preservation. She was a member of the Washington Library's inaugural class of fellows, which led to the publication of her first book, First in the Homes of His Countrymen, George Washington's Mount Vernon in the American Imagination. She also spoke at a Ford Evening Book Talk at Mount Vernon on December 7, 2016. Today, she discusses how replicas and imitations of Washington's estate have risen in popularity throughout American history. And now, Drs. Brandt and Bradburn. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Lydia Brandt. Dr. Brandt is a professor at the University of South Carolina. Welcome, Lydia. Thank you for having me, Doug. It's good to be here. So I've known Lydia Brandt since she was a fellow here, uh, one of our inaugural class of fellows. And uh, Lydia has a brand new book published by the University of Virginia Press. Tell us about the name of the book and what it's about. First in the Homes of His Countrymen, George Washington's Mount Vernon in the American Imagination. Had to get George Washington in that title. Yes. Even though the book really starts where Washington, when Washington dies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it tells the story <laughs> of... Enough of that. Let's get to the aftermath. <laughs> it tells the story of how Mount Vernon became an icon mm. and how it became, uh, how it came to be one of the most complicated and multivalent symbols in American uh, visual culture, and especially in popular American architecture. Well, I'm holding the book in my hand, and I'm going to paint a visual picture mm. right now. I'm looking at the cover, which is a great, fantastic cover, because it has an image of Mount Vernon uh, in Florida. It's a, a motel in Florida. Yes, yeah, a motel in Winter Park, Florida. Palm trees. Uh, is it? Does this still exist? This is a postcard. It was actually torn down uh, in the last year, no. which is so tragic. Oh. I tracked down the gentleman whose father built the hotel mm. via Facebook, uh, oddly enough. Really? And yeah, and huh. um, this was one of a small chain of hotels that his father owned and built in the 60s. Mm. And it's much like motels that were built all over the country to look like Mount Vernon. Mm. Amazing. So that was one of the popular uh, hotel designs to use. Yes, the early motels that sprang up as the roadsides grew in the 1950s and 60s. Mount Vernon and the Alamo were the two uh, buildings most often copied for really? hotel designs. Yep. Well, Doesn't take much to make the Alamo. You, you want to make your trip memorable. <laughs> you go to the Alamo in Tennessee. Exactly. <laughs> and then you can remember the Alamo. Cha-ching. Bing. Okay. Uh, that was a joke, people. Uh, Lydia Brandt is Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of South Carolina. Now, you're training... Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna look at your CV. It's sitting over there. <laughs> I'm gonna do this. You have a PhD in uh, architectural history. Yes, art and architectural history. But art, I am okay, an architectural so, and historian. And it's from UVA. So that's yeah. that's yeah. one program there. Art and architectural. That's a department. 
in the architecture it's school. a program that squishes those two fields together which are distinct departments is it in the architecture school or in the arts and science it's in the college of arts and sciences oh, okay. Okay, but good. my the my advisor richard guy wilson is in the architecture school hmm. and your department at south carolina is a art history department it's an art department an art department yes ah. it is a studio art um it includes studio art art education media arts and art history oh, so why did you want to go into architectural history art history uh the story uh, that usually works take us back to the childhood <laughs> of lydia brand my parents dragged us around to a lot of house museums oh really yeah and yeah. it was fun because mm. my dad was a big jokester mm -hmm. And really liked to poke fun of things and kind of egg on the docents yeah. and buy ch you know, cheesy they things that, in the gift store. Sometimes they did. There were other times <laughs> where he pushed it too far. But really made history tangible through, honestly, through other people's houses. And then I'm also kind of a nosy person. I like to go in other people's houses and look at their <laughs> stuff and judge it. So, um, well, I'm so glad I've never invited you over. <laughs> So yeah. writing about uh, writing about houses and writing about America's most famous house came pretty naturally. Mm. Um, but I also just found in college I was an art started as an art history major, but I found architecture much more satisfying to study mm. because unlike painting, which you see as a slide projected onto a wall, you have no sense of scale mm. in a painting. You have um, really no sense of its tangibility or its materials. Uh, and so often I would look at paintings in class and then go see them in the museum and be like, oh, man, it's dinky or mm. it's dark or it's dirty and yeah. find it really unsatisfying. I had never had that experience with architecture. Going and seeing a building mm. is always a surprise. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you put that because I, I've actually been in a lot of art museums, like classical art museums recently. I was at the National Gallery in London and I was mm. at the National Gallery in the United States. And those, of course, are fantastic collections sure. and wonderful spaces the to be in. But these paintings are not where they were, you know, right. by the people who own them. They have no them. context. No context. And I'm a, a boring historian. All I keep thinking about is, well, when was this painted and who right. wanted it painted? Why did they want it this way? Yeah. yeah sure. I can't just enjoy the art like a normal person. I mean, that's pathetic. I can't do that. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I like that idea of, you know, being able to get the scale and going into the space. Uh, what's your favorite non-Mount Vernon site to kind of to indulge this sort of uh, enjoyment that you have? Real pleasure. Would I be cheating if I said Monticello? No, not at all. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. Uh, I find Monticello to be really fascinating. It's yeah. it's a, a house museum that I grew up with much more than Mount Vernon, which I did go to as a child, but only a handful of times. My uncle and aunt both worked at Monticello for many, many years, and I grew up in Charlottesville. So that was the house museum mm. that I felt really comfortable in from a young age, mm -hmm. and kind of knew the, knew all the little tricky um, stories and and yeah, right, things the like painted that. Doors, and you got to go upstairs probably long before they opened it. Absolutely. To the that's um, nice. So that felt really special, yeah. and so that's a place that I think is pretty amazing. Yeah. And much like Mount Vernon, it's a place where you really feel this powerful presence yeah. of, of the person who not just helped to make our country, but made this place really particularly in their own vision. The uh, the Monticello book that really struck me um, is probably really out of date now. I mean, I'm thinking of the one. Biography of a builder, Jack McLaughlin, is that his name? Mm. Uh, Jefferson, the biography of a builder. But mm -hmm. it, it, just when you realize uh, with some of these historic homes, of course, they never 
would have looked like the way they look now. Right. You know, for the people that lived in them. And Jefferson's in particular, right, you had to get that version of Monticello that he basically tore down and started over, at least the facade, he kind of completely redid. Right. You know, yeah, the double-decker Palladium. He took kinda. the building down to yeah. the brick walls. Yeah, he redid um, it. Which yeah, is he, he saw France and yeah. his whole world changed. So much for Italy. <laughs> he never went to Italy. It's no. so sad. Yeah, well, I, yeah, well, I think, um, yes, so uh, this comes up because I, recently I was talking about the Marquis de Chastelux earlier, and he visits Monticello in the 17th, right after Jefferson's done with his stint as governor, and he gives a nice description of the house, and of course mm -hmm. it's not the house any of us know right. as, as uh, Monticello anymore. Unlike Washington, who saved his pennies and did not tear the building down twice. He yeah. just kept adding to it yeah. and dealt with the kind of gangliness of his building. It was never perfect, and he seemed to have accepted that. That's always my big joke when I talk about Washington and Jefferson, that that was mm. the difference between them. Well, who knows if he'd lived longer. He definitely probably hoped that the thing would have been destroyed by the British during the Revolutionary War so he could build a proper house. <laughs> I don't know. He was doing a lot of changes during That's the war. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he wanted to make it look junky. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, it is extraordinary to think about that he, yeah, he's building the whole new room, that whole wing. Uh, it's studded out like in 75 or 6 it's, or something like that. It's almost hard to understand yeah. how someone could and I think it gives I think it gives a sense of how important the house was to him. Mm. And in particular, how important the new room was to him at mm. this moment that he was had so many difficult things and on his mind and had so many responsibilities that he was thinking about the space in his house and how it would project a certain image of himself. Yeah, I find that his ability to handle those two things at the same time to be pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. So this book project came out of your doctoral work. Or? It did. Okay, so it did. All right. And uh, at the time, what were you imagining? The future book would be. Uh, um, I don't know chronology. that I wanted to go there. Yeah. The so the <laughs> <laughs> my advisor Richard Wilson planned out the book in my uh, in my dissertation defense, and mm. it was the book I ended up writing. Uh -huh. But of course, mm -hmm. I kind of said, "Pshaw, that sounds too hard," mm -hmm. and refused refused to believe that that's what I would actually do when I started yeah. to write in earnest three years later or two years later. But the book started um, as as actually a not even a dissertation as a master's hmm. a paper in a master's level class wow. um, on a replica of Mount Vernon constructed at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition yes. in Chicago. Yeah. And in the process of writing that paper and discovering a building that no longer exists, it burned with the rest of the fair or was taken down with the rest of the fair hmm. um, at the end of 1893 and the beginning of 1894. Um, so in addition to just having to figure out what the building looked like, make sure it looked like Mount Vernon, because mm. everybody said it did, um, I also had to figure out what the motivations were for a group of Virginians in 1893 to copy Mount Vernon in full scale. Yeah. So talk about that. What, why did that happen? This particular group of Virginians. And what was the exposition? It was the Columbian exposition it was the Columbian, in Chicago? It was, yes. It yeah. was the big one with yeah. the yeah. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Everybody yeah. always remembers that. And Aunt Jemima was introduced at the fair and also the Ferris wheel. Really? Aunt Jemima? Mm. I don't think I knew that. She was. She huh. was. Um, so the, the explanation that I have concluded um, mm. on is that this group of Virginians, they were, they were white. They were formerly formerly elite 
uh, looking to rise back to prominence and power after the end of Reconstruction. And Mount Vernon being both a plantation and a building representing Washington and Virginia's contribution to colonial history um, allow them to kind of mush all of mm. that pride together. So the pride in the Confederacy and in slavery as an institution got kind of mushed together mm. with their pride for, for being the mother state and, and the home of George Washington. Mm. So they created this narrative through objects mm. uh, within the house. So you had Dolly Madison's piano next to whiskey flasks owned by Jefferson Davis. Oh, okay. So through all these objects, and these were all owned by this group of people, mm. um, they told a narrative that was seamless. What was the group's name? Did they have a They They name? were a board of managers, okay. yeah. and uh, many of them were prominent Richmonders oh. who were joined by various, various fraternal and uh, organizations and, and groups within um, Richmond, but also groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution. How did the house fit into the broader fair itself? Was it in like a an American section or something? It was in a, a kind of a neighborhood of buildings constructed by each of the states. Not okay. all the states built buildings, but oh, many of I them see. did. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, it it didn't need to fit in because each of the buildings was distinct. But right. there were other states that replicated buildings from. Uh, America's early history. So Pennsylvania did a version of Independence Hall. Okay. Uh, Massachusetts did a version of the John Hancock House. But the Mount Vernon was remarked upon by many people who visited the fair as the most faithful. Mm. Um, and that started mm. this this kind of snowball effect where everybody, every World's Fair wanted a Mount Vernon. Nice. And so we like that. We ended up with six of them at mm. World's Fairs between 1893 and 1934. Wow. And that's what I wrote the dissertation on. Okay. Yeah. All right. So and that and so your advisor's saying, okay, you need to you need to expand this to talk right. about all kinds of representations of Mount Vernon and to talk about yeah. Mount Vernon as a popular image yeah. more generally. I was hesitant to go there because with the replicas uh, at the World's Fairs, I was I was comfortable even though the buildings didn't exist anymore. Mm. I all but one of them has been destroyed uh, of the six. I was comfortable with them because each of them had archival depositories mm -hmm. that were particular to either the group that constructed the building or the World's Fair. Mm. So I had these little caches of very neat documents, it ephemera. It like a great little book. It yeah. was great. Yeah. <laughs> but Richard said, well, I don't yeah. know that, that's, that those World's Fair buildings are interesting enough. I think mm -hmm. the story is bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And I balked at it because it seemed really intimidating. Um, and then a couple years later, uh, other things happened. Mm -hmm. They, the stars aligned that mm -hmm. allowed uh, allowed me to write that bigger narrative much more comfortably. Yeah, well, it's very exciting that you the book is done and here it is in my hand. And uh, of course, you know I knew when you when you were working on it uh, and thinking about it here as a fellow, you just opened the library, and uh, because the book deals a lot with, of course, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association and and their efforts to either control the image of Mount Vernon or encourage the image to be used in different ways. Uh, you know, you, you use the archives here. And we were talking earlier about, you know, this is a, a new effort uh, of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association to open their archives up for scholars. Yes. And you okay. were part of the reason uh, that they and we had to come up with some policies about uh, access. Yes, and I, I'm so honored to have been 
part of the catalyst for that um, because the star the, the star that really aligned to, to mm. allow me to take my book my dissertation to this book uh, was the fellowship here at Mount Vernon and more particularly the resources that I found here um, the ladies papers that I dug through going all the way back to the creation of the organization in the 1850s under Anne Pamela Cunningham to the 1980s allowed me to see this continuous mm. narrative of how this particular group of, of people, this particular group of women, has understood Mount Vernon and kind of sold it, yeah. but also how it has been consumed mm. and the tension between um, that kind of official narrative of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association and the popular understanding of the building. I yeah. found that to be really fascinating and it gave the book a kind of skeleton on which I could hang yeah. other things that seemed that seemed more difficult. Yeah, that's that's really good the way you put that because you know as you read it, I I, I love it because well I work here for one thing, so I'm kind of <laughs> like invested in the story now, and so you're sort of reading the history of your institution. But I love the way you weave in between the kind of here's what the Melbourne ladies are trying to do with the house, here's what, how they're dealing with the population that's they're trying to get to come, right? And here's how they're, re but here's what's going on in the popular world out right. there, this world they. They can't control, and it, and what strikes me, you know, is is um, you know the generational quality of the ladies. You know, the, their concerns and their attitudes about the house really change quite a bit. I mean, they, you know, for a historic preservation association, a lot of people who, you know, are out there maybe think about it. Well, they they probably think, well, it's just kind of the same stuff right. all the time. You're trying to keep the stuff the same, right? Right? right yeah. But it's very different. Yeah. No, the the, the yeah. mission of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association is extremely conservative. It's take it back to Washington's time. Boom, that's it. Yeah, um, easier said than done. But absolutely, <laughs> and that's where that change that you're talking about comes in. And yeah. and what I discovered is that in the history of historic preservation in this country, something I've been invested in um, throughout my career, the ladies, the story of the ladies for most people stops. Once they buy yeah, Mount Vernon, that's right. But they yeah. they were the first to do so many other things, and because Mount Vernon was so prominent, both as a popular icon and as a house museum, the influence of those generations of decisions yeah. is humongous. And so, one of the things I hope that the book does is changes people's minds about how they think about the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Yeah, yeah. Um, to think about them as an organization with a conservative mission that's always approaching that mission with the latest and most interesting and, and in many cases, daring um, techniques and methodologies. Mm. Well, yeah, I th and I, you know, I think it, it comes out here in a strong way. I mean, one of the stories which I always find striking is when the, the board decided to take the, uh, the balustrade off the, yes. off the, the house, yes. which had been, it, become such an iconic part of the Absolutely. architecture of George Washington's home, this wonderful Chippendale-style kind of balustrade. Right. I guess we assume was put on in Bushrod's Bush era. Bushrod, yep. Um, and, uh, and they just decided they had to get rid of it. Yes. And that was really amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And in the and at the same time that they took down the This is nineteen thirty four or thirty two? Thirty six. Wow. At the same time they took down the Chippendale railing or five years before, they also took the little porch that was on the south right. elevation. Yeah. And those are pretty It's like a double decker kind of porch, right? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You yeah. could walk out from right the, from the, from the bed chamber. Yeah. Yeah. Um but those were pretty 
those were pretty bold choices, mm. but those weren't the first bold choices that they had made. And there's a great story in the book. I'll give it away. Um, <laughs> that Spoiler alert. <laughs> that they, uh, as they were taking it down, Harrison Dodge, who was the super, the great superintendent that preceded Charles Cecil Wall, yeah. um, was so distraught that they were taking it down. He really fought it. This was right before he died. Mm. Um, that they kept the balustrade in in um, storage yeah. just in case wow. <laughs> research changed. So I guess we should we should hunt around. Should we have it? Still here. I don't know. Actually, now that I'm telling the really story, I'm not <laughs> Why sure. Why didn't we go look at this balustrade? Um, you know, that's really funny because I bet we got rid of it because there was a big purge in the 40s. And the, balla the balustrade yeah. that they were taking down in the 1930s was, was actually in the early 1870s. Uh, so it had been redone. It had been rebuilt. Yes, oh both goodness. the South Porch and yeah. the balustrade were rebuilt in the 1870s. Yeah, the Ladies Association, because they really didn't have any storage space around here, mm -hmm. um, you know, they got rid of a lot of stuff and, you know, that didn't belong anymore. And, you know, deaccessioning is still a challenge in institutions like this. You've acquired things that really don't fit the, the late 18th century anymore. And the ladies' recent deaccession was really fascinating. Mm. There were some difficult choices, I think, because yeah. some of the objects, even though they're clearly not Washington objects or maybe even not... 18th century objects have gained some kind of significance in the history of the Ladies Association. Yeah, that's right. They've been in the house in different parts. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little story Please. about this that really cracked me up. I was staying in Quarters, which is the ladies' residence on uh, on grounds here at at Mount Vernon, and I was doing a little doing a little morning yoga, and I found myself as we do as one yeah. does, yeah. and I found myself looking underneath. A Windsor chair and I saw this little tag I'm not making this up uh -huh. I saw this little tag and I looked at it and it had the handwritten on it to mrs. Car or from mrs. Carpenter Chicago Illinois and I know mrs. Carpenter well she shows up in the book um, she was she was the vice regent for Illinois in the 1930s um, and so it was so neat to see this chair which had probably maybe even been in the mansion at some point and then They'd figured out that this wasn't appropriate or it was booted by an actual Washington-owned object, uh, got moved to quarters. So, so you're, never, you're never far from uh, yeah. history, even if it's not George Washington-related history here at Mount Vernon. Well, yeah, and so we are now, we're down in the bowels of the Mount Vernon Library, the George Washington uh, Presidential Library here. And, uh, you know, we are within a stone throw of some things that have been in the mansion for a long time, including some of the chairs that were on the back porch forever. The, right. Those green ones that were built in the late 19th right. century that we just right. deaccessioned uh, de and, and uh, replaced with some more uh, more appropriate shapes from the in color from the 18th century. Right. But uh, yeah, it's a it's an extraordinary place. Well, it goes back to the archive of the Ladies Association, which um, you were really crucial to our library staff, and and you know in that initial phase where you're basically just going through things and helping to find where things are and um, you know because we've one of the challenges of this library we're not only in our third year was to really not only bring it into the 21st century but to bring it into the 20th century right proper finding sure. aids and things like that but it is sure. an archive of continuous uh, women's leadership and historic preservation it goes back to the 1850s and you know is we're still building it so absolutely it's an amazing collection of stuff and I really look forward to seeing more scholarship <laughs> that comes out of it. Um, yeah. 
it was it was fun to be on the front end, kind of to be on the front lines of, no. of seeing seeing many of these or all of these um, collections before they were really yeah. um, they were really culled through. So I look forward to coming back and looking at them. Well, and we're with we're, the mining we're in the midst of a push as well right now to get more of the ladies to send us some of their family papers. Yes. That, yes. That, um, that that they may still have that aren't here, so we can have those and add them to the the archive as well as collecting ephemera, more ephemera yes. related to Mount Vernon and George Washington's legacy over time. So hopefully, you know, you know we'll have more to share. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. And then more of these these individual women's personalities will come out because yeah. this these were incredibly accomplished, mm. organized, intelligent people, and they still are. <laughs> <laughs> All Absolutely, those and it's it's hard for me to believe that these women were not organizing their own papers, that they weren't making very careful scrapbooks, that they weren't keeping mm. their own clippings files. Yeah. And I think the more that the library can do to to find those um, in attics or trunks or uh, basements mm. would be really would be really terrific. Now, one of the sexy things that you have put together mm-hmm. in the course of the, maybe that's not the right <laughs> word, but I I think it is. Uh, that you put together in the course of researching and pu- putting together this book is this database of Mount Vernons out there. Yeah, right? the database lives in an Excel spreadsheet, yeah. but yes. yeah, but that's yeah, okay. Lots a, of them. So Lydia's been trying to find all Mount Vernons out there. Send them to me. Send them to her, <laughs> and uh, and we'll get them in there. You have some in your neighborhoods, probably out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Um, talk a little bit about the different types of Mount Vernons that you've discovered, and and sort of some of the you know and fit that into your history. As sure. You um, so the replicas stayed the core. They're really a 20th century phenomenon after the World's Fair of Yeah, they really get going in the 1890s. And yeah. I think the Virginia building at the World's Columbian Exposition, which was just such a... It's fun- interesting that they didn't do Monticello. But anyway, yeah. Monticello is a much more complicated building. Yeah, well, that's true. And Monticello yeah. was yeah. replicated at the 1904 uh, Louisiana Purchase okay. International Celebrate whatever yeah. um, fair. So they... Virginia did do a replica of a Monticello, but mm. that leads me to a big point, which is one of the reasons I think why Mount Vernon does get replicated so often is because it's really easy to make something a Mount Vernon. Mm. Paint it white, yeah. stick a porch on it, <laughs> and, cupola, and you're kind of done. You don't even have to have a cupola, That's and true. it still yeah. works. Um, yeah. Ronald Reagan National Airport is yeah. a Mount Vernon, although a very yeah. just abstracted one. So in it used a, to be called Washington National Airport. Right. <laughs> yes. But I lose her today. I was reminded. Um, but the um, the replicas really get started with that 1893 World's Columbian Exposition mm-hmm. and with uh, a series of Mount Vernon-inspired houses completed by McKim, Mead, and White, the prominent New York architecture firm, yeah. and a group of other So these are very high, uh, wealthy very, people's homes. Very high-end. Yeah. The kinds of houses that showed up in all sorts of magazines, country life, that kind of thing that mm. people just ate up so at the turn of the century. Yeah, so these are kind of the first suburban country houses kind of things? Yeah. Like trolley call suburbs they of were Richmond and stuff like that? In, in Long Island, in yeah. Philadelphia. Um, yeah. And these were these were buildings that were highly respected mm. in, in the kind of architectural mm. world, the domestic architectural world. Mm. So it didn't take long for people to start kind of doing their own versions for middle class audiences. Mm -hmm. So by the 1910s, you have versions of Mount Vernon popping up in neighborhoods. By the 1920s, um, you start to see Mount Vernon transforming into other building types. Mm. So hotels first, because the motels didn't really exist yet. 
yeah. you start to see um, a little bit of the roadside architecture, banks, and that kind of thing. But things really get going in the 30s and then after the war. Mm. Um, and after the war, you have t the development of two new building types that were completely new in this country that took on Mount Vernon in a very special way. And those are the motels and the funeral homes yeah. of the post-war period. Yeah, um, the funeral home strikes me as really appropriate. Well, the I mean, funeral really homes does. are pretty fascinating. Yeah. And that was a story that was a little hard for me to unravel mm. because um, funeral homes and the funerary industry is rather closed. Mm. Uh, but I've, I've sorted out a little bit of it, I think. Uh, that the funeral funeral homes really started on, as storefronts on Main Streets after the Civil War. They stayed there until the 19-teens and 20s when they started moving into the, yeah, the big house the on... the famous undertaker who lived you know, right. on the main street. Yeah. Right. And then they moved into these big Victorians that people couldn't afford to keep up anymore. Right. Uh, and that was a way to normalize funerary practices. Many people were still having funerals in homes. Many people still didn't see a need or have an interest in embalming. And after World War II, when so many men died yeah. um, and went through a very modern embalming and funerary practices, and especially after the death of President Kennedy, actually, hmm. which really kind of mobilized the funerary industry in a different way, which I found oh, really interesting. Um, I don't know anything about that. I didn't either. It was really, <laughs> it was a dive into a part of history yeah. I didn't know anything about. But that gave way to a new building type, and mm -hmm. one that was m much more unabashedly commercial, mm. um, and that was purpose-built for all the, the different kinds of activities that right. need to happen in, this, in the process including in the grieving process. And so Mount Vernon, I believe, was chosen by many of these um, funerary, funerary folk um, mm. to normalize that process mm. and to make people feel comfortable. So it's to a make grand, people... but it's familiar space. Right, right. You know? and it's, it's, the home, it's the home everybody wished they lived in, mm. just like Washington. Mm. And the most important of all the Mount Vernon funeral homes is uh, at Forest Lawn, which mm -hmm. was a terrifically popular destination in addition to being a mortuary. It mm. was a place people went to get married. It still is. Uh, really? A, a, it is a tourist destination. Huh. And, um, and so that was, that was part of the publicizing both within and without and the in funerary California. industry. Yes. It's a chain California. Californians are very strange. Mount Vernon in a fu as a funeral <laughs> home in California. Why not? It's always <laughs> sunny out there. At least you know, that's uh, that's that's really extraordinary. One of the other uh, the types, and you mentioned these types of buildings are the the kind of Sears uh, yes Roebuck homes. Yes. Uh, there's one that's sort of like some kind of colonial thing. It's got a piazza Mount Vernon, but they With call the it the Jefferson, Dale, really. right? It's called the Jefferson. They do that's call the Chippendale. Yeah, which is shocking but they you said they have another one called the Mount Vernon in there. They already had one called the Mount Vernon. That's so interesting. And Jefferson <laughs> so Sears and Roebuck releases a Mount Vernon um, design in 1932 the year of Washington's bicentennial yeah. for mm. the bicentennial and um, I think Jefferson was also a really it was seeing a resurgence of enthusiasm mm. in the 1930s. Yeah, yeah, FDR did that. Right. Jefferson Memorial and all right, that comes right. out of that. Yeah. And so that was just a way to kind of smush together early American history mm -hmm. and founding fathers and plantations yeah. all together. But the Sears uh, the Sears Jefferson is really the first time that a commercial um, prefabricated homes company 
takes Mount Vernon, simplifies it, abstracts it, and markets it. Mm. And that sparked many other companies like Peace Homes, Aladdin, um, all of the other companies that were following in Sears's footsteps to do really similar versions. And so mm. you still see Mount Vernon's uh, yeah. home plans on the internet today. Yeah. And some of the same companies, including Garlinghouse, is still making them nice. 60 years later. Wow, that's extraordinary. Hey, that, yes. That's not very popular. It can't be that popular now. Well, they're always the most expensive model. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> takes, well, that's Washington. Yeah, takes that's some, take some cash to, to live like George Washington. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> Uh, it's it's uh, extraordinary. I mean, they're all over here. Obviously, there's sure. that bank out on Route One. Uh, it's a good one. Now Wells Fargo and there's and an in, in my Alexandria. neighborhoods, there's all those sort of fifties, which is, they just basically put the long piazza on the front of the house, and they kind of sloping roof, and they're all over the place. Mount Vernon I mean, ranches, why not? Yeah, yeah. So it, fascinating. So so, what does the ladies' association think about all this? I don't know what they think now. <laughs> well, no, I don't mean, know what they thought back then. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they really thought much about it after mm. a certain point. They fought it. They fought it so hard, mm. especially in um, the 1920s and 1930s when people were writing every day to Mount Vernon saying, "Can I have drawings of this? And yeah. can I have a photograph of this?" And it's interesting because I think we'll put a pause in that and come mm -hmm. back to the point. Because I think uh, I think the reaction would be almost the reverse today, in the mm. sense that the ladies would love it if everybody wanted to build a little Mount Vernon to live in. You know, I think they would they would really see that as, as a great way to get the story of George right, Washington out there. Sure. You know? But anyway, so so they're against it for what authenticity? They want to protect authenticity. I think they were they well. One of the things that they were really concerned about in the 1920s and 1930s was that people that the public would. Um, look commercial. at them poorly oh, okay You're right that they would somehow be benefiting from this commercialization which is a concern that they had had going back to the night the 1860s right, right so it was understandable why they were concerned about they can't that profit from the the general right yeah, even right. though they weren't profiting from right you know sears copying the building so they were concerned about that but i think that authenticity was also something that they were very concerned about mm. so one of the things that I found really interesting, and this goes back to the point that we made earlier, that they're always kind of on top of things, even with that very, or to pursue that conservative um, end game, that they um, they didn't respond by just saying, oh, you guys can't replicate Mount Vernon. Hmm. They responded by doubling up their efforts to present the most authentic Mount Vernon they could. Mm -hmm. Thinking, if yeah. people are going to copy Mount Vernon, we can't stop them. Mount Vernon is owned by the people. We're only stewards. So let's let's just give them something that's worth copying. Yeah. Uh, and th so in the 1930s, you see a real professionalization of the organization. They hire um, Morley Jeffers Williams to run the, a brand new research division. Yep. They redo Have you looked at the drawings of the house? That they, we have those here. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're like huge. Yeah, and he he unbelievable. was suggesting the um, the rebuilding of the greenhouse, which isn't done okay. until after the war, but that's right. first under his suggestion. So I found that to be a really interesting strategy and a very proactive strategy against what they saw as this kind of gross commercialization. Hmm. And I'm not sure after that they really were too concerned about it because I think to some degree it wasn't worth their time. They yeah. had many other things to do and ultimately that was outside their mission which they've always been so dedicated to yeah well and, and as i say i mean i think they're you know they they want people to be enthusiastic about george washington and the fact that they would want to build a, 
version of his house seems like a good idea. Sure, uh, sure. So I, I guess at some point they, they let go. But, yes, uh, they certainly did. But, you, but, of course, you know, as you point out, you get those first booms, really booms in the in visitation, uh, 500,000 in the mid-30s, mm-hmm. a million people by the early 50s. 50s. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know th- those are the high watermarks, I think, of people coming to Mount Vernon. Absolutely. It's, a, it's the... It's the it's the baby boomers. Uh, no, it's the the children. They're they're being brought. I guess right. The school it's, groups. Uh, yeah, it's the uh, the fifties. It's people with a little more cash in their pocket. They got cars. And I think there's the, well, the cars is part of it. Um, yeah. And of course, the Parkway is part of. The you don't have that Disney World in the yet. 30s. It's close. Fifty four. Yes. <laughs> Disneyland. Um, yeah, there's not that much to compete with it. But I think you're also in the nineteen fifties. You're seeing the kind of afterwash of the patriotism that followed the end of World War II mm-hmm. um, and, and Korea and the kind of gearing up the Cold War. I think yeah. patriotism really spiked uh, in a way that inspired people to come to Mount Vernon. And that produced so many problems for the ladies, how to manage this many people, mm. how to make sure that people came to Mount Vernon and left knowing something yeah. Uh, and didn't just wait in line all the time or got sh- you know shuttered through the house so quickly they weren't able to see anything. And so yeah. that's when you see some really interesting strategies in the 1950s and 60s for the ladies to control the narrative or to present the narrative in different ways yeah. to ensure that their audiences received it. Um, and Charles Cecil Wall, who was the superintendent that followed Harrison Dodge, is really, uh, is really at the forefront of that. And he comes up with so many ideas, so many of them never happened. So many of them happened much later. He is one of the people who suggests or advocates for putting an underground museum exactly where the Museum and Education Center is now, which is pretty amazing. Oh, wow. Really? Um, yeah. Well, there's only so many places to put it, I guess. Right, yeah. right. But thinking about, yeah. all right, well, we got we have to create a place where, where people can get the story Yeah. Um, if the rest of the joint is so crowded that it's hard for them to see it. So it's interesting. His sense was it was more of a, man, a, a crowd management challenge than a than a civic education in the sense that the people coming knew stuff about George Washington. Well, uh, their experience was crappy because it was so busy. It or? was so busy, but they were also recognizing and and you hear you you read him writing to the ladies or reporting to the ladies that people are coming with much less understanding okay. yeah. of, of, of American history. Yeah. We always think the kids these days don't know the anything about the history. The kids these days. <laughs> <laughs> it is an ongoing challenge out there. <laughs> we know it is. Uh, Absolutely. But, uh, um, yeah, so, and then they, the Ladies Association, uh, from your telling, I mean, you have a lot of challenges coming out of the sure. civil rights era. You've got the, uh, the, the, obviously, the growth of social history and the, the, you know, the beginning of the culture wars. I mean, sure. the, you know, the whole conflict over Vietnam, the patriotism doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. To numbers everybody. were very low in the 1970s. It's interesting. You said that. Did you? Ha- I don't remember the numbers you listed. What were you? I don't know the numbers average, off of my yeah, head. Off but the they top. were low enough it that, they were low enough that in the 1970s, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association had, it, had to have its first capital campaign at the mm. end of the 1970s and beginning of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and it was its first yeah. capital campaign since raising money to purchase the property. That was astonishing to me that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that was the, the uh, of course, their ambitions had grown as well. And, Absolutely. And, and the things you needed to do, of course, the 70s was a time of great inflation as well, so they would have had to raise the price a lot for that alone. But, uh, 
But yeah. And um, they didn't want to raise the price at, of admission to be prohibitive. Right. And they also didn't want to accept money from the federal government. Mm. Um, but Absolutely not. They've but always wanted Melbourne to Melbourne Ladies Association still depends on the patriotic donations of people like you out there. Uh, and in still podcast land has still d- does not accept uh, does not accept money from the federal government and no. ha- to in my research has only accepted it once and that was reparations for when the federal government shut down the boat landing yes yeah so that was after um, the civil war that was a that was a uh, repayment of lost fees not a donation ex- absolutely right uh, okay let's get that clear get that in the <laughs> record um, with that but that first capital campaign that really struck me um, because of course now you know fundraising is an ongoing sure. thing that we right. do here, and every historic home does it, and Absolutely. universities, and and um, and an important part of uh, of what we what we need to do uh, to keep the place going. But um, but now you stopped the book in the mid '80s. Yes. Why did you stop it in the mid '80s? Because there is a 30-year rule here <laughs> in the archives at Mount Vernon. Uh, blame um, us. I see. I could, could. You know, <laughs> you have to cite the limitations of your sources. Because mm-hmm, uh, you're a good historian. Yes, you know yes, it's true. Um, I am a good historian. But yes, I do know that as well. <laughs> um, so I, I had access to the annual reports, which are mm. more or less distillations of the minutes for a popular audience. And that didn't feel like an adequate no. um, resource, especially in comparison to the acres of letters and ephemera and all right. this, all right. these materials I had to, to talk about the earlier decades. So you have to have to do you have to do a sequel. I will have you to do some a oral histories of some go. of the board. Or people buy enough of the books, I'll have to do a That's revised right. edition. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to that. Let's see how we're doing on time here. Oh yeah, we should probably wrap this uh, bad boy up, but. Um, uh, let's uh, let's end it though with maybe an anecdote of some of the uh, something you were surprised about that you discovered after the dissertation work was done. Sure. Uh, you know, as you got into the story a little bit more, what what uh, what 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 struck you as you kept as the, as you went back to this story that you'd already spent so much time on. One of the one of the I guess it's not so much an anecdote, but more of a kind of something I had never thought about was how complicated it was for the ladies to furnish the house. Ah, yes, yeah, great. Um, that the house had been completely empty when they got it, which I really had never known. Yeah. Um, and then to imagine that they got it right before Civil War began, yeah. uh, when they had no money, they had no endowment, they didn't raise a dollar beyond their purchase price of the property. So their challenges that they face just to get stuff in the house was fascinating and how immediate the public expected them. I mean, the public is no different now than it was then. Mm. Um, Very demanding. Very very demanding. Unrealistic about how museums actually work. And so you have people showing up right after the war, 1866, saying, oh, this house is a dump. (laughs) The paint's peeling. There's no furniture. It's like, well, what did you expect? <laughs> uh, we just got through a war, and they just got the place. So reading about how they made decisions was fascinating. Yeah. And then layering on top of that, there really was no tradition of the study of American furniture or decorative arts. Mm. There are so many people now that you call and books that you look upon and uh, experts on textiles and furniture yeah. and wood and this and that. And there was none of that. Mm. And so they were, in some ways, working completely in the dark with no budget to outfit a house that 
Americans had declared the most important building in the country. I mean, that is just astounding. Yeah. It's um, still astounding that they were allowed to buy the house. I mean, the, the, nobody else the wanted it. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> and well, I, and they had the money ultimately. They had the money, and, and yeah. I think John Augustine Washington was so anxious to get out of the property yeah. that even though he had said earlier in Anne Pamela Cunningham's campaign, I'll never sell to women, I would be. I would be absolutely mortified to yeah. sell this property to women. Um, they're ultimately the only ones who wanted it, and yeah. I think that for says his a, price. Yeah. For his price. <laughs> yeah. But I also think that says a lot about Anne Pamela Cunningham's yeah. um, ability to negotiate mm -hmm. and to convince him that they were the right people. And when you think about the con the construction of the Washington Monument, which is happening at around the same yeah. time yeah. as the Stalled. ladies are having yeah. this campaign, it's going nowhere, yeah. and it's run entirely by men. Yeah. Um, so obviously well, the, the American- hate each other. So. <laughs> <laughs> obviously the American public trusted this group of women. Yeah. Uh, and so furnishing the house with that trust on their shoulders it was a huge responsibility that they achieved mm. just almost magically. Yeah, there were some weird things in the house early on, but their notion of Furnishing it was uh, was different than it would become. Right? Their notion notion of furnishing it um, initially was just let's fill it with stuff so it doesn't look empty. Yeah. Uh, but they knew they knew they wanted to have Washington specific mm. and Washington related objects. They re revered much more than revering something for being beautiful or being of a, a certain type or a good example of an 18th century whatever. They knew that that something that had been sat in or used by Washington had had an intrinsic value. Mm. So they were always seeking those kinds of objects. Yeah. Uh, and so things like the bed in which he died, the harpsichord that everyone loves to, to tie Washington to with his relationship with Nellie Custis, um, those kinds of things ended up being or objects that other things were organized around. Yeah. Um, that's kind of background until they could be replaced. Yeah, well, that's an amazing story of continuity then, as well as change as, uh, over time as the, uh, and the board continues to acquire things, and uh, it's extraordinary how much stuff the Washington's had. They had a lot <laughs> I mean, of stuff. Well, it's went, also a very big house. It's 10,000 square feet. It, it, is. it was one of the largest houses in Colonial Virginia. Yeah, it is a, it is a big house. Well, and it's a, a great book that talking about the big house, and we appreciate Thanks, uh, your efforts here as a fellow. You are a, a great fellow, and we're glad to have you back. And It's uh, an honor to be here always, and I could not have done this project without the library, without the ladies, without you and, and Mount Vernon's staff, so I'm extremely grateful. Well, thank you very much for those compliments, and uh, I hope everybody uh, tunes in to watch uh, Lydia's talk tonight, which we'll be recording Fun. as well. So, uh, Having given it all away. <laughs> Absolutely. No, there's lots of other good stuff in here. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Doug. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.